Welcome to the November episode of International Voices. My name is Udo Fluck. I oversee the global program in Arts Missoula, and I am the host and moderator of this podcast series. To listen to episodes from the last two years, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global, and visit Radio and Podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you through a collaboration of Arts Missoula Global and The Trail 1033. The monthly episodes in 2023 are exclusively sponsored by Orr McDonnell Law, advocates for all personal injury, family law, and landlord-tenant matters. My guest today is retired Major General Donald Loringer, who served in the United States Air Force from 1966 until 1996 as an operational pilot and specialist in U.S. national security policy. He started his career graduating from the University of Montana in 1966 as an Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps cadet. He also holds a master's degree in 20th century international diplomacy from Michigan State University. Mr. Loringer has extensive national and international leadership and diplomacy experience serving in Southwest Asia, Germany, and Bosnia. Mr. Loringer has served as a military fellow on the Council on Foreign Relations and has been a member of that group for over 30 years. Furthermore, for over a decade, Mr. Loringer has been the director of the Defense Critical Language and Culture Program at the University of Montana. It is a pleasure to have the opportunity today to talk with him about the importance of language and culture training and citizen diplomacy in U.S. foreign relations and national security. Welcome, Major General Loringer. Well, thank you, Udo. It's a pleasure to be here. So jumping right in with the first question, as I just said, you graduated in 1966 from the University of Montana. How important was your educational foundation at the university for your professional career? Well, essential is a short answer. You know, I'm born and bred Montana through and through. Uh, one of the more frequent questions I was asked during my career, and even, even now afterwards, was how I could be successful and not having been an academy graduate. And my answer was always pretty straightforward. I had an advantage. I was a, a Montanan, and I graduated from the University of Montana. That's a great answer. You also hold a master's degree in 20th century international diplomacy from Michigan State University. When and why did you get interested in international diplomacy? Well, in the Air Force, uh, if you're going to be a line pilot, as I was, and you want to be successful in your career moving forward, you need to do more than just fly airplanes, which is important enough as it is. But uh, the thing that I found pretty interesting is one of the reasons I joined the Air Force was to see the world. And so international diplomacy was the academic vehicle that I could pursue and then follow that on with an attache assignment, as it turned out in in Laos, and that's a whole nother cultural story because I was a Western European area specialist and my first job was in Laos. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty challenging. Well, not so much challenging, but I used to explain to the Air Force detailer that uh, when you're trying to explain to a Laotian why you're really not a, a, a colonialist pig, uh, it's tough to do it if you can only do it in French and English. Good point. 
when we talked earlier, you told me that you got started with your international interest and the desire to see the world when your mom used to take you and have her to a store. Yeah, we'd go to J.C. Penney and get a bag of stamps, and I had a stamp book with Afghanistan, oddly enough, in the, as the first page. And in the middle, we had an African country uh, that, that had the French uh, stamps made in France because they were a former colony. My mother and I thought that the country was Mozambique. Uh, and it wasn't until I came to the university that I actually discovered that Mozambique was actually Mozambique. And that just goes to show you how globalization has sort of changed our world. Right. But what a great um, beginning to have that as a, as a child, an interest in international stamps. And that in Haver, they had they sold them in bags. And you could actually start that hobby of stamp collection. I did, and, and uh, we haven't talked about this in the past, but a good friend of mine uh, who was a fraternity brother and, you know, grew up in Haver with me, uh, I sold my stamp collection to him when I was about 18 years old because I wanted to buy a, a shotgun to hunt pheasants with, which I did. And about uh, 10 years ago now, uh, my mother was very upset, by the way, that I sold that stamp collection about 10 years ago. That friend of mine named Scott McKenzie, who has since passed on, brought my stamp collection back to me. Oh. Wow. But he was a Montanan. That's what Montanans do. Right. You were appointed in 2012 to the National Security Education Board by President Obama. Can you tell us a little bit more about that appointment? As I know, there is a connection to John Tester. Well, Senator Tester actually nominated me for that position to to President Obama. I had had the opportunity previously to sit down with President Obama for about two and a half hours in a national security discussion. But Senator Tester nominated me for the position. I had applied for it because I had an interest based on what I was trying to do at the University of Montana with the National Security Education Program itself. Uh, so I had to go through this process that was pretty interesting to include uh, in, uh, security interviews at the White House where they ask you every question you can possibly imagine and the toughest question is the last one and that is did you have you ever done anything in your life that would embarrass the president <laughs> and that makes you think back a ways right but oh, absolutely <laughs> anyway i made it <laughs> how has that appointment influenced and shaped your career after retiring as an operational pilot and specialist in U.S. national security policy in 1996? Well, for virtually all my career, I, I had figured out very early on, based on the education background you talked about and other things, and traveling all over the world, that understanding other languages and cultures was an essential national security element. Uh, and so to find, to have the opportunity after I had retired from the service uh, to have the opportunity to further that program at, at my university as a grizzly was pretty exciting. And so it was kind of like a retirement dream come true, and that's been 15 years ago. And it's always impressive to me when people can do a full circle uh, of where they started and come back to that somehow. And I think a lot of people don't have that opportunity, but 
you started at the University of Montana in 1966 with the graduation, and then you came back in the, in the 90s. Yeah, the circle's even a little tighter than that, Udo, in that uh, I graduated, went to pilot training, and I flew caribous in Vietnam, 4th, 5th Special Forces Group. Uh, and the 5th Special Forces Group and other such groups are who we train today in the university program, the Defense Critical Language and Culture Program. Wow, that is tighter circle. You're right. You have been stationed in several locations overseas in your career, serving as the commander of the Joint Task Force in Southwest Asia, commander of the 435th Tactical Airlift Wing at Rhein-Main Air Base in Germany, and operational commander of the Peacekeeping Forces Operation, Provide Promise, the aerial resupply of Sarajevo and Eastern Bosnia, the longest-running humanitarian airlift in history. What did you professionally and personally gain through these cultural immersion experiences? Well, the personal gain is almost immeasurable. It made me so proud of being an American and the opportunity to serve in those capacities. The, uh, the educational background and the real life experience that I'd had in all those different countries and others was absolutely essential. And sometimes there were forces from other countries that came under my operational command. In other cases, we were operating in foreign countries, obviously flying to other countries. There's the imperative of really understanding the cultural environment that you're inserting yourself into and, and how to leverage that knowledge uh, to get the mission done properly and keep your, keep your people safe. What would you say to a student who is considering studying abroad if they are not sure if they should do it? I'd say the studying abroad is probably the smartest thing you could possibly do. I mean, the, 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 the bottom line is uh, you hear a lot of opinions about whether or not people like globalism. Right. It really doesn't ma matter what your opinion is. <laughs> Globalism is here. Right. And it's here to stay. Right. And it's going to get stronger. And your ability to operate in that environment by understanding other cultures uh, is essential if you want to be successful almost any place. Right. And that brings up a good point, and that is um, the fact that it isn't limited to um, military personnel it would be applying to pretty much anybody who would have any contact with anybody who's culturally different. So you could be a professional, you could be a student, you could be a, a volunteer, you could be anybody that if you have had an opportunity to uh, experience another culture through some kind of a stay abroad, whatever that may be, is something that is impossible to match in a textbook kind of a situation. It, it absolutely is. It's experiential learning, right? Right, right. And, and it's, it's so crucially important for many reasons and perhaps one of the most selfish ones, but nonetheless valid, is that if you graduate with an academic discipline and you can also speak a language, you can virtually write your ticket in terms of starting off on a professional career. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's often something that people might not really consider 
as a as a as a career opportunity is to go study abroad. Um, people uh, are doing that in all kinds of capacities. I'm thinking of uh, doctors without borders, engineers without borders, um, people that are going outside of their own cultural comfort zone to uh, interact with people that are culturally different. And the things that one learns are are hard to actually quantify, I think. And, and judging this from my own experience of having come here 30 years ago, if somebody would ask me, so, so Udo, how, can, how do you measure that? It's not really measurable, but it's a fact that you actually understand other people and in a deeper level. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, uh, and the practical considerations are, for example, large com- companies in the world today that have a requirement to have people that are schooled in their academic area of endeavor, but also need to speak a foreign language. Sometimes they're working on government contracts that have a security clearance requirement. Right. You you can't you can't have a security clearance unless you're a US citizen. So being a US citizen that can speak Chinese, Arabic, Russian, any Korean, any number of other languages is uh is something that you can leverage personally in terms of your professional development. Right. Were these experiences abroad from when you were living in other countries and you mentioned a number earlier before we went on the air on how many countries you have been to, but was that a catalyst for your later involvement in language and culture training management? Well, I mean, the short answer was absolutely. At the time when I started this job, I'd been to 126 countries when I was in the Air Force, uh, and it's, it's it's foundational. I mean, I I realized very early on in my Air Force career that understanding other languages and cultures and how people react um, and, and thinking twice before you react to them uh, based on your knowledge of their culture is essential. So I was, I just can't tell you how pleased and proud I was to come back to my university, my grizzly university, and be able to uh, teach soldiers and airmen and and. Navy SEALs, whomever, uh, other languages and cultures. We talked about your formal academic background in international diplomacy a little while ago. Now, traditional diplomacy takes place between states. Citizen diplomacy involves person-to-person contact between citizens of different countries, whether by professionals, volunteers, students, travelers. We talked about your formal academic background and um, with that experience, how important is citizen diplomacy to U.S. foreign relations and national security? Well, I mean, I think it's essential, and I'll tell a little story maybe to emphasize the point. You had, you had mentioned Provide Promise earlier yes. in resupplying Bosnia. Uh, we had French forces that worked for me and German forces as well, actually, at Rhein-Main. And one day I was told by the French detachment commander that the French parliamentarians wanted to come to Rhein-Main Air Base, Germany, and they were not happy that the French were participating in this out-of-NATO geographic uh, endeavor, and uh, they were going to come visit, and they wanted to talk to us. So I said, fine, and uh, the debt commander was talking about the briefing he would give them, and I said, well, I'll give the briefing. 
So I made the briefing up, and I made about four PowerPoint slides in French, and I gave the briefing in French about 15 minutes. Probably wasn't the best French in the world, but I gave it in French, and that changed the whole day. If I if I wouldn't have done that, I guarantee you they wouldn't still be there. But they, the French appreciate the fact that you you made the effort to speak French. Absolutely, and you did it right. And I think that probably is true for um, many countries and many languages. I always appreciate if somebody that um, I meet uh, can say a few words in German. Well, even that. I mean, it's it's, it's not just. Even less than a few words sometimes. I mean, I've driven all over the United States, as I'm sure we all have here. And every strip mall you come to, there's a Chinese restaurant. Right. I don't speak Chinese. But at that strip mall, there's usually a Chinese restaurant. And when they bring me my food, I know two words in Chinese. She she, which is thanks, or she she ni, which is thank you very much. And I say one of the two of them to who has ever served me, they light up like a Christmas tree. Right. Because you know one word in their language. So think what you can do if you can actually speak it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't have to be even uh, a whole sentence. A couple of words is, is sufficient to impress somebody. Can we talk a little bit about, and I remember you said this to me many years ago, that um, somebody can be as uh, trained as, uh, as they can be, but if they are not culture and language smart, their whole training, whatever that may specifically be, may not be as um, effective and efficient as if they are culture and language smart. What does that mean? Well, there's there's a couple of different aspects to culture and language smart. One is to learn a culture, be it French or Norwegian or Arabic or whatever, and the culture associated with that language is very helpful in dealing with people from that region and that country and, and how you work out, how you problem solve together. Uh, but it also more importantly, changes the way you think. So if three years later you're talking to somebody from a different culture right. that speaks a different language, you will have, you, your past cultural experience will change the way you think and approach that issue. It makes you think twice before opening your mouth. So it makes you more thoughtful, more considerate? Absolutely. Why is this more important today than ever before? Well, it gets back to this globalization issue. You, you listen to a lot of debates on the media about whether or not people like globalization or not. Right. Well, it doesn't make any difference. It's here, right. and it's going to be—it's going to be more and more. When I grew up in Hever, Montana, I didn't care what was happening in the Amazon rainforest, and not, nor did my parents. Right. We care now. Right. right. And it's like almost every other subject in the world. We're an interconnected world, and if you want to survive and flourish in that interconnected world, you must you must learn other languages and cultures and have some sense of respect for what their issues are. And what happens if people are not culture and language smart? Is that usually a good ending? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not usually a good ending. But but I'll tell a story the opposite about that that actually occurred here early sure. on in the program. That'd be great. I was waiting. I was waiting for uh, a gentleman that we had hired who was an Afghan medical doctor uh, to come be part of our program. 
and I was waiting with another young man, student at the university, master's degree, who was from Afghanistan. And the airplane was three hours late, and we're at the Missoula airport. So we talked about a lot of subjects, and one of the things we talked about was there was a pastor in Florida who had burned, he had about 12 parishioners in his church, and he'd burned a Quran to make a big political statement, which caused a huge uproar. That's the ultimate blasphemy in Islam. Caused a huge uproar in Florida. And so as I'm talking to this Islamic person about this issue, uh, I commented that, well, to burn the Bible or the Quran is offensive to me, but freedom of speech in this country, I you know that, that that's their right to do. The, the other person's view was, well, it interfered with his ability to practice his religion. Well, I didn't agree with that, but then again, I wasn't Islamic, so it was one of those things where you, you're not necessarily going to come to agreement on this particular issue because you come at the issue from a different frame of reference. And it's important that you don't have to come to agreement all the time as long as you understand the different frame of reference. Right. So the awareness is really what yeah, right. what is the key, even if you in the end don't see it the same way or understand it fully, but it's the awareness, being aware of it. Right. You were a driving force in starting – um, the Defense Critical Language and Culture Program 15 years ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about the inception of the program and what the catalysts were? Well, uh, the program started because the university had applied for a grant uh, and Senator Bacchus, who was then a U.S. senator from Montana uh, helped engineer the grant. It was $282,000 uh, to teach languages and cultures. And when I came into the program, we, we'd gotten the grant. We'd hired a couple of people with different areas of expertise around the world. But we didn't have any students. Uh, so I knew that the mother load, if you will, of language requirements for the United States military in terms of who – has an overriding requirement to be able to understand languages and cultures almost more than anybody as a large group is the special forces community. So I went to what was then Fort Bragg is now renamed Fort Liberty uh, and and talked to the senior people there and I said give us a chance we'll we'll put on the best school you can you can ever imagine and using the three important uh, aspects of putting on a good academic program, which are faculty, 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 we establish what is the best scoring language school in the country. That is impressive. Now, this started in 2007. Right. How has the program changed since 2007? Well, the, the short answer is we went from $282,000 to uh, $15 million, uh, a year. Right. Uh, we now have 92 faculty members. We teach 13 different languages. Wow. We have eight French instructors from seven different countries, in interestingly enough. Uh, and we teach regional studies and culture, not only to those people, but also members of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and other organizations. 
how important is it that the Defense Critical Language and Culture Program is affiliated with the University of Montana? Um, well, it's absolutely essential. I mean, there's lots of, I call them, well, I'm not being kind, language mills, but there's lots of places where the, that provide language training for a profit. We don't do it for a profit. We do it because we're educators and we're Montanans and we're proud of the fact that we can, you know, help our military be a better better force. I mean, 10% right. of the citizens of this of this state are veterans. Right. So it's pretty close to us and, and a lot of those veterans have been very helpful in us starting the program in the first place. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a great fit for Montana. Can students get college credit from UM uh, for the language and culture courses they take in the program? They all get college credit. Oh, wow. So it's really an incentive for Absolutely. Not, not only for the skill development, but also because you it counts towards your, as a student, towards your credit requirement. Well, it's also important because it holds our feet to the fire. We have to go to the accreditation committee at the university right. and, and demonstrate that we're actually teaching legitimate Academic courses. Oh, sure. And and we are, and so that's that's identifying as an academic entity at the University of Montana is essential. Does the program collaborate with other professional schools, academic departments, on campus? We do. We we need to do some improvement there as time goes by. There are nine other schools that are language training center schools funded by DOD. We get about 68% of all DOD dollars spent on this program. The other schools divide the rest. We do some collaboration with them, although to be technical about it, we're actually competitors. Uh, there are opportunities to, to cooperate Across the academic structure at the University of Montana, we have some improvement to do there uh, using the same business model and other endeavors. Right. Uh, but the but the bottom line is we all, we're on the same team here, and we should all be working together. Do students that are starting here, do they go to the other language training hubs in the country? Um, that are also part of the DOD, or do they start here and stay here and finish the program here? Well, they pretty much start and finish the program here. They may come back for a refresher at some later point in their career, but we will take some students, for example, that start out at zero zero. They don't speak the language at all, and bring them to what they call an ILR, English Language Roundtable of One uh, Plus, which is moderately fluent. We can do that in six months. We measure. We measure the time in a in the, a different category of languages, and there's four um, in terms of how difficult they are. And when you measure how long it takes to go from one level to the next, we do it 38% better than any other school. Wow. And you can do it in six months. That's impressive. You can do a category four language. Yeah. Uh, you can get somebody to a pretty conversant state back and forth. Uh, in six okay. months. Half a year. Wow. Now, you said just a little while ago that um, the success of the program hinges on three factors. Faculty, faculty, and faculty. Um, can you please elaborate a little bit on why faculty is of tremendous importance to the program? 
Well, and I and I'll also caveat this a little bit because my my military partners and customers, if you will, will remind me that the students are a pretty big part of the equation too. And I'll I'll admit that. As, sure. And I don't mean to exclude staff when I say faculty, but the bottom line is. When you're doing an academic program, how good you are at the pedagogy of it and, and the presentation and, and reinforcing the skills needed in a language program, that your faculty is, uh, is just absolutely essential. So that is you know, recruiting the right people. You have to be a linguist uh, and an excellent one at that, fluent in the language Obviously, you also have to be a team player. When you have people working in the same office, the same facility, from in our case right now, it's about seventeen different cultures. Right. There's lots of potential there for friction if you're not careful. Right. Uh, not with our not with our faculty. They they get it. They're team players and they're linguists. I remember you had a. Uh, an open house event that I was fortunate to go to, and it was like walking into the United Nations. <laughs> um, that's how international the flair and the and the environment was of just hearing different languages in different rooms. That as you were walking down the hallway, it was really like an international experience. By the time you got to the end of the hallway, because you had heard all different languages and seen different people. Um, speaking them and interacting with each other, and it all looked like one. Like you said, one one big team that was, yeah, and that's been reinforced. I mean, we had a uh, shall remain nameless, but we had a senior uh, leader of the university visit our facility that we where we teach at Fort Liberty in North Carolina, and she not only liked the pedagogy and what she saw in the classroom and the students and the interaction with our faculty, but she noticed at lunch when we all met for a buffet lunch, fifty five of us. Uh, that they didn't group up by nationality. They all grouped up as a group and had lunch together. She thought that was pretty remarkable. Right. But that's that's a culture that we've worked hard to instill. Yeah, but I think it's so important that um, you don't, even though it may not be as easy uh, to uh, to venture out of your own cultural group, it's always easier to stay within your own cultural group. But I remember when I when I first came to Missoula uh, in 1989, um, somebody said, "Oh, uh, you know, there are other Germans in town, and they meet regularly, uh, like once a week." And I'm thinking. I didn't come here to meet other Germans, as nice as, as that may be for, for the group, but I thought probably I should meet other Americans that are here that, um, that I could interact with, speak the language, whatever. I shouldn't admit this, but that's why in my entire professional career, I have never eaten at a McDonald's overseas. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> so I had, uh, coming to the end of our, of our time, I had two more questions. One you kind of answered already, but if you'd like to add to it, what makes the program at the university unique? How is this program different from an individual's foreign language and culture acquisition somewhere else? And in the previous answer, you, you basically, I think, covered that. 
we already talked about the expertise of the faculty, which which is absolutely essential. Uh, but we also focus on the fact that this is experiential learning, not just book learning. Uh, you know, if I want to teach you about another culture, I can do it by the book all day long, but right. you don't quite get it. But if you experience it, right, right with indigenous faculty members in particular, but not always, uh, that's a whole different different ball game. And it's it's kind of like. Uh, and we don't worry about people who are racist, but it's kind of like if you tried to teach somebody academically not to be a racist, you can talk to them all day long, and they can read all kinds of books. At the end of the day, they're still going to be probably a racist. Put them in the same foxhole with somebody, and that's a different ballgame. Right. So we try to put them in the same foxhole. So living it and not just learning it, but, but living it and... Being I mean, immersed in it, it's one of the one of the things for a country. I mean, I know we're not going to have a universal draft, but I think we had to have universal public service. And one of the reasons you have universal public service is you take people from all different walks of life, and different geographies, and you put them together in the Civilian Conservation Corps or whatever. the The, the Peace Corps does this amazingly well, right? Right. It, it fundamentally changes who people are and how they react to the rest of the world. Right. What is your vision for the Defense Critical Language and Culture Program moving forward? Well, I mean, I hope uh, we can continue doing what we're doing and certainly expand, although we're getting pretty good size now. I, I do think we need to work harder at having greater academic connectivity across the board of the University of Montana. Uh, so that we can all use different aspects of the business model to move forward in totally different subject areas. Uh, and, and one of the areas that's, that's coming up, for example, there's lots of discussion in Montana now about uh, s cyber warfare and, and cryptology. Well, we, we train people for NSA that, that are cryptolinguists. Uh, so there's lots of different ways, degree program-wise, especially now that the university is developing more and more online courses where we'll have greater synergy between the between the two so it's it's really all about creating an ecosystem of of uh, language and culture learners uh, and not specific in a discipline but it's all about the same sort of approach and the idea of bringing people together and not having them isolated in in a, an academic setting. Yeah, and a lot of it, it gets back to this business of training somebody to have a life after college, right? Right. Uh, you want people in this world of ours, and I use journalists as a good example, what's the job of a journalist? The, the journalist explores, explains the world to, uh, to, to their listeners. Right. Well, if, if you've never understood another language or culture, uh, How that's much can fine. You explain? Yeah, as long as, as long as you're going to do the weather from Stevensville the rest of your life. But if you're going to explain the, the, right. the rest of the world, right, that's a different story. You need to actually have a deeper understanding and appreciation in order to to be effective at what you're doing. I right. agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your insight, your experience with us. And to the listeners, thank you for listening to the November podcast of International Voices. My guest today was retired Major General Donald Loringer.
The monthly episodes in 2023 are exclusively sponsored by Orr McDonald Law, advocates for all personal injury, family law, and landlord-tenant matters. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Arts Missoula Global and The Trail, 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and The Trail, 1033.com. If your interests are in global and intercultural education, programming, cultural and global competence and international affairs, we hope you join us again next month for the last episode of International Voices in 2023. As always, we will pause in January and resume in February of next year with a new episode of the International Voices podcast. <laughs>